Hi, my name is Rhythm. And my name is Eki. And we are the hosts for season three of the TRU Business Law Podcast. We are current dual students who are passionate about the corporate commercial legal world. The nature of business law is that it is a constantly changing legal landscape. That's why we aim to utilize this podcast to provide students, lawyers, and the general public insights from talented legal professionals from some of the most accomplished firms in Canada. We hope that our conversations with rising legal stars, law professors, lawyers, and other legal professionals provide you with thought-provoking entertainment. However, this podcast is not legal advice. Today, we welcome Paul Blyshak, who is counsel at Baskin Calgary, primarily practicing in mergers and acquisitions, private equity, and venture capital. Paul is an extremely accomplished attorney, and we're very lucky to have him speak with us today. Just a little bit about Paul's background. He's got a very interesting backstory and career path. He's a native Montrealer who went to law school when his first career choice didn't go as planned. After doing English lit at McGill, he moved to South Africa and bought a 1976 Land Rover, which he drove about 13,000 kilometers across 11 African countries and wrote a narrative nonfiction travel book. When he couldn't find a publisher for his book, his fallback plan was law school in Australia. Now he's called in three countries, namely New South Wales, New York State, and Alberta. He has published 15 law journal and law review articles, including with the McGill Law Journal and the Alberta Law Review. He made partner at Blake's and is now counsel at Baskin. Most recently, he finished his first law book called m Agreements in Canada, Transactions and Litigation. He describes it as a practice-oriented review of m case law and contractual interpretation disputes, and he's here to speak with us about life as an m lawyer. He's also going He's also going to tell us a little bit about alternative career paths in business law, as his new role with Baskin is quite bespoke, allowing him the flexibility to be entirely remote to the point where he could even work from outside of the country. Paul and his wife are planning to move to South America next summer. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us here today, Paul. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. So you've had a very interesting career path, and now you're an M&A lawyer who is publishing a book on M&A case law. So why don't we begin with the basics? What exactly is M&A? Yeah, uh, for sure. Thanks, Eki. Um, M&A stands for mergers and acquisitions. But really what that means is one company buying another company or a part of another company. Um, So like a recent example is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. Or in Canada, a recent example is Rogers' $26 billion acquisition of Shaw, which is actually fairly controversial and is now pending and before regulatory proceedings. So M&A, as those two examples can just tell you, M&A is often high value and high profile. And what's cool about that, I think, is that it often means that you're working on deals being covered by the press. Um, That's really interesting, Paul. Thanks for sharing that. And so why do you think it's important for members of the TRU Business Law Society to be familiar with M&A law and practice? Yeah, for sure. I think the reason is simple, and it's frankly like one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast. Um, Because unfortunately, I don't think it's a reason that is necessarily apparent at law school or just taking business law courses. I think the most important thing to appreciate is that M&A practice groups are, to a large extent, the sort of engines of most corporate law firms. And I really need two things here. First, that M&A practice groups are very often like the largest groups within uh, corporate firms, um, like namely by headcount of lawyers. And second, and this is kind of the key, 
more than any other group, M&A groups very often require the assistance of other practice groups in connection with the transaction, like whether it be the tax group, the competition group, the banking group, or the labor employment group, like et cetera. So I think what this means for members of the TRUBLS, what they should be aware of is that if you're planning on joining a business law firm, whether in Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary, your practice is likely to involve M&A at least to some degree. Like either it will be a big part of what you're doing because you're a member of the firm's M&A group, or it will be a smaller part of what you do because your group is one of those groups that is occasionally enlisted by the M&A group as part of an M&A transaction. Awesome. That's great to know. Um, Law school definitely seems to be broader when they talk about different practice areas. And I personally didn't realize that M&A was such a large group at most corporate firms. Um, So can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean when you say that M&A groups often need the help of other groups in connection with an M&A transaction? Yeah, for sure. So, So what I mean is that a lot of different areas of law and expertise come into play during in an M, like during an M&A transaction because one business buying another business is a very complicated thing. And then like the bigger the business being acquired, the more complicated it is. So there's a lot of things to be planned in connection with the purchase, which you can refer to as the structuring of the transaction. Then there's all the things that need to get actually done to actually implement the transaction which involves lots of contracts and paperwork. And then there's the regulatory hurdles that may also have to get cleared, which involves dealing with various government agencies. And so the M&A lawyers are kind of the ones quarterbacking the deal, um, to use one analogy, or to to use another analogy. They're they're kind of the ones steering the ship at the middle of all this, uh, handling the main transaction documents. So... The lawyers are kind of, you know, driving the bus, but then they bring in other practice groups, you know, to go back to the other analogies, to to sort of be the the sailors that the captain brings in to, you know, to attend to their particular area of the ship. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Businesses are definitely complicated. It makes sense that many expertise come into play. Can you provide more specific examples for the different related practice groups in terms of what they'd be doing to help out? Yeah, yeah, no sweat. Okay, so let's take tax, for example. So, So the tax group will be involved in the earlier stages of the transaction, doing a tax analysis and ensuring that the transaction is structured in the most tax efficient manner, like either in terms of avoiding taxes that can be avoided or maximizing the use of available tax credits, things like that. So then take the competition group, for example, they'll be involved to advise whether the transaction could trip any triggers under the Competition Act or related legislation. And then if the transaction does trip those triggers, then the competition group will continue to be involved, heavily involved, frankly, in steering the transaction through the applicable regulatory process. So, for example, dealing with the Competition Bureau, which we're seeing now in the Rogers-Shaw deal. And then to take another example, uh, for example, the Labor Group, 
uh, they'll be involved in handling how the buyer plans on dealing with the new employees that come with the with the business being bought. So, for example, if the buyer intends to lay off some employees where there's going to be too much overlap, the labor group will advise there, such as regarding what severance payments may be required. And then all these groups will also likely make small contributions to the drafting of the actual main M&A transaction agreements, namely in terms of recommending or commenting on clauses relevant to their aspect of the transaction. And so like when you step back, you see that different related practice groups will be involved in different parts of the deal at different times. And that it's the M&A lawyers that actually stand in the middle of all of this, like directing traffic and being the central conduit through which all the deal work flows, involved, you know, including the contributions of all these different, you know, related expertise uh, practice groups. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, I'm starting to understand what you mean when you say that M&A transactions are, you know, very complicated. Um, I'm also interested to know more about the different phases of an M&A transaction that you, you know, are referring to. Yeah, yeah, no, great question. Uh, that's important. So most M&A deals have three distinct phases. The first phase is the negotiation phase. This is where the parties are negotiating the fundamentals of the transactions, like what is being bought, for how much, and how the transaction will be structured. Um, this is also where the buyer is doing its due diligence of the target business. Um, this is also where the main M&A agreement, excuse me, M&A agreement is being uh, like negotiated and drafted. And then when that M&A agreement is signed, the parties enter into the second phase, uh, which we call the interim period. This is the period between signing and closing. And what's happening here is all the stuff that needs to get done to actually implement the transaction. So examples here, um, and to borrow from things we've already talked about, is the competition group dealing with the competition bureau in pursuit of regulatory approval. Another example is the labor group being involved with handling the transition of employees such as making offers to key employees to make sure they stay with the combined business post-closing. Another big piece is the M&A lawyers handling issues and documents related to the transitioning of the purchase business, such as the conveyance of the ownership of certain assets or, or dealing with third parties who have contracts with the target business that will be impacted or who might have rights that are triggered by the transition of the business moving over. And so all those things have to be attended to and smoothed over, um, et cetera. The third phase is the post-closing period after the deal closes. Uh, this is typically a much less intense period. Um, it generally involves kind of cleanup stuff and there's typically more work for the lawyers of the buyer to do than you know the lawyers of the seller who are now you know a you know to a large extent out of the picture thank you for clarifying that for us and our listeners i'm just going to circle back a bit to how different people are involved in different ways in an m a transaction 
How can TRU business law students expect to be involved in M&A transactions at the beginning of their careers? In other words, as summer students or articling students? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so there, there are two big moments in M&A transactions. Um, the day the M&A agreement is signed uh, is the first one. And then the second one is the day the transaction actually closes. And it's in connection with those two things that summer and articling students um, can expect to be uh, most involved or, or to contribute to. So in connection with execution, um, students are most likely to be involved with the buyer's due diligence of the target. So they'll be a part of a due diligence team and tasked with re like reviewing a slew of contracts of the target. Um, as part of a due diligence report and to review certain key clauses that might be tripped by the transaction, like change of control transactions, assignment clauses, things of that nature. Um, they'll also be doing a variety of searches through various public registries to make sure there aren't any problems there. Um, for example, if the target business has a lot of real estate assets, they'll be doing land title searches to make sure there aren't any major surprise registered encumbrances on those resale, uh, sorry, on those real estate assets. Um, another example is litigation searches to see if the target is being sued by anyone and if so, for what. And then in connection with closing, students may be involved or frankly will likely be involved in preparing various closing documents that need to get executed on the closing date to actually complete the purchase. Um, you know, all those sorts of things that the M&A lawyers will have been putting into place during the interim period that I kind of indicated earlier. And I think something interesting to note here is that on both points in relation to execution and in relation to closing, um, we've recently, like, there's recently been a bunch of new legal tech uh, that helps with these tasks and that students will likely be using. So really what I'm talking about is software. And on the due diligence side, there's Kira is probably the best known one, which saves lots of time and cuts down on the human risk uh, or sorry, the risk of human error when there's th literally thousands of contracts to review. Um, and then regarding closing, there's there's a couple out there. I think closing folders, probably the best known. Uh, another good one is deal closer. And basically what, what these programs do is greatly facilitate sort of getting all the ducks in the row, sort of like the talking about documents, like ducks, all those document ducks in a row um, for closing. Wow, that sounds really complex. It's good to know that there's resources that can help students cut down these errors when they're starting off. And so how do things change as law students get more experience? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it, it, it's all an evolution. So as time goes on, the student and the student moves up the ranks, uh, they will take on more responsibility and get exposed to more of what's happening um, across the development of the transaction. And as, you know, in relation to the contributions of the different practice groups that we talked about earlier. So first they may take on a greater role in the preparation of the due diligence report, um, graduating from doing the sort of grunt review work to contributing to the substantive legal analysis that informs the main body of that report. Um, then they graduate to helping plan the due diligence campaign and taking ownership of the report for the review of 
the mid-level associates and senior associates. Um, and around this time, they'll also begin to contribute more to the drafting of the M&A agreement and understanding like how what is learned during due diligence actually begins to inform negotiation strategy and drafting. So for example, particular reps and warranties or indemnities in the M&A agreement that the buyer may demand from the seller in connection with problems or potential problems discovered during due diligence. Or another example is sort of bespoke closing conditions that the buyer may need uh, to be satisfied before it's prepared to proceed with closing. And so what I'm getting at there is, you know, due diligence actually impacts what goes into the actual M&A agreement and you'll, and, 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 and the negotiation of the parties and you'll get a, you know, you'll get a better view into that world. And then from there, you graduate to taking a, a main role into drafting the main M&A agreement from front to back. And, and then of course, you'll also begin to become more and more involved in the negotiations themselves. Of course, initially just sort of sitting in on conference calls with the mid-level or C-level, you know, senior associates, um, you know, seeing how that gets done and then how the, you know, how the big points are sort of fought over and hammered out in, you know, on those calls. And then obviously towards, you know, the later stages of, of being associate, you actually, you know, lead those calls and, and, and conduct those negotiations on behalf of your client. Wow, um, M&A practice sounds really, really exciting. Uh, thank you for providing real-world insight on what practice is like for students and, and young lawyers. Um, what are some of the other things that TRU Business Law Society members should know in connection with deciding whether M&A might be a good option for them? And are there any negatives that you'd want to flag? Um, yeah, well, I mean, one thing that I would highlight uh, is that if you're interested in business law because you're attracted to making a lot of money, um, then I would consider gunning for M&A. I mean, basically, uh, in my experience, uh, M&A rainmakers are often the highest paid lawyers at the big corporate firms, whether in Canada, the United States, or otherwise. And the reason for this goes back to a lot of what I've said earlier. Uh, first, the fact that M&A deals are multi-phased and complex. This means that there's a lot of legal work to be done and so a lot of hours to be billed. Um, second, more than any other type of file, as I said, M&A files require the help of multiple other practice groups, you know, as we talked about tax, competition, banking, litigation, labor, etc. This is important because this means that if you're the M&A lawyer who brought in the M&A deal, you're getting credit not only for the hours billed by the M&A group, but also all the hours being billed on the file by the other practice groups. And partner compensation in law firms is mostly determined by how many billed hours the different partners are responsible for bringing in. So the more hours you bring in as a partner, the more you get paid. And if M&A files bring in the most hours because they're generating hours across multiple practice groups, well, the natural result is the M&A lawyers often get paid the most. Um, the other group of lawyers making a lot of money at corporate law firms are the high stakes litigators, of course. 
But in my experience, the M&A Rainmakers are the biggest chunk of the top bracket. And, you know, as a natural consequence of that, there's also a lot of internal influence um, that comes with being an M&A Rainmaker, again, because you're the gatekeeper, not only of ours to the M&A group, but also to the other groups that you call in in connection with your transaction. And as the M&A Rainmaker is the partner who brought it in, you know, there's, a, there's five different tax lawyers you could call. You know, you get to choose who that one is going to be. So a lot of people within law firms are really, you know, trying to be best friends with the M&A Rainmakers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That sounds like they're very important internal dynamics. Um, are there any negatives of life as an M&A lawyer? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you asked. Um, that is definitely something really important to talk about because um, it is not, it is really not all sunshine and rainbows and bonus checks. Uh, far from it. Um, what I think I would want to emphasize here is that life as an M&A lawyer is both very unpredictable and very stressful. Um, it's unpredictable in that you really never know when the next deal is going to come in. Um, and conversely, deals can die just as quickly as they landed, you know, with either the buyer or seller deciding they're no longer interested, you know, perhaps because they've discovered a skeleton in the closet via due diligence or because there's been a crash in the markets. So what's important to appreciate here is that transactional work is notorious for being a roller coaster and for its peaks and valleys. You can have three deals land at the same time, in which case you are extraordinarily busy, or you can have a completely empty plate, in which case you're just sitting on your hands watching days go by and without your hours count going up and the chances of you reaching your hours target getting less and less likely. So, so this is why most M&A lawyers, you know, particularly junior and mid-level associates are very hesitant to say no when a senior associate or partner asks them if they're available to help on a file, even if they're already busy. One, they don't know when the next file might come in. Two, one of the other files they're working on could die at any time and often do. And three, they don't want to get a reputation as a junior that turns down files because that might make it less likely for the same senior associate or partner to approach them first in the future. And so is that where the stress comes in? Yeah. I mean, that's where the start stress, to, <clears throat> where the stress starts to come in. Um, but, but there's also some nuance and variation like on the stress point. And what I mean here is that the sources of stress change and grow over your career trajectory. As a junior, for example, when you're doing a lot of due diligence, uh, the stress may mostly be a factor of how much reviewing there is to do in a truncated time period. You're on two or three deals at the same time, and the client wants everything done very quickly because everyone wants to preserve deal momentum to decrease the chance of the parties falling out of love with the transaction or something else going wrong. When you're a mid-level associate, it's the amount of drafting you have to do while also overseeing the due diligence of the juniors and students. Um, when you're a senior associate and partner, 
you know, and this is where things can get really intense. It's the fact that you're literally at the center of the deal, overseeing the work, not only of the M&A group, but also coordinating the work of all the related groups. Again, you know, tax, competition, labor, banking, environmental. So at these senior levels, you are sometimes literally getting hundreds of emails a day coming from all directions. And it's your job, you know, to help put out all the little fires that are springing up and, you know, to keep the bus on the road. And then, you know, if it's, if it's an international transaction, like a cross border deal, for example, involving European buyer, you know, then you're, you're, then you're just waking up to 20 emails, like to begin with, like your day is starts crazy busy, you know, from the get go. Wow, that sounds like things can get really hectic. Yeah, yeah, it, it often gets very hectic. Um, I've been on deals involving parties from Canada, Europe, and Asia, in which case uh, there was not like any time of day during which I wasn't receiving emails or that things weren't coming up that I had to attend to. Over the years, I've, you know, for reasons like this, like, I you know, over the years, I've had to cancel like a bunch of vacations for transactions, other vacations I went on, but spent half the time or more working, you know, and needless to say, all this can be very hard on um, your personal relationships, um, the regularity with which you see friends and family. It can be very hard on your mental well-being. Um, you know, the reality is that burnout is a serious problem in transactional practice. You know, there's other problems um, you know that you, that you often hear about such as substance abuse or depression uh, you know the, the profession is really trying to deal with these and address these things but it's difficult just because of the very nature of transactional work um, and, and and the reality of client demands in the transactional context so all in all you know, my advice would be if you're the kind of person that doesn't handle stress well, you know, then I would consider recommending against going into M&A. You know, conversely, I will tell you that, you know, the people who I've worked with um, and the people who have impressed me the most and, you know, very often the people who are the most successful at the big law firms when it comes to M&A practice and the M&A rainmakers you know, they're very cool customers. They're just the kind of people who deal very well with stress um, and and are very capable of, 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 you know, just rolling with the punches. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that, that that's a reality of the practice. Um, thanks for sharing that, Paul. That's a lot to take in. And that seems like an important bit of advice for people to consider. Um, going back to earlier today, you explained that you also have more litigation experience than the typical M&A lawyer. Can you tell us a bit more about that and maybe how you'd compare the life of an M&A lawyer with the life of a litigator? Yeah, yeah, good good idea. I love talking about my litigation experience. Um, so the, the thing about me is the first three years of, of my practice and research post-call were actually spent doing commercial litigation and arbitration work. Um, it then came back into my practice in a significant way from 2016 to 2020 when we landed uh, two giant and interrelated arbitration claims for a very important client. And because the subject matter of my LLM was international commercial arbitration and claims under international law in particular, 
I was a key member. Um, specifically, the, the big claim was an indirect expropriation claim against Egypt under a bilateral investment treaty. And this was an area of law that I had published multiple law journal articles on back in the day. Um, and then very importantly, there was also a major M&A component to the file as what our client was trying to achieve was the sale of its fertilizer factory, the one at, at issue in the indirect expropriation claim. They wanted to sell that to Egypt. So I led the M&A part of the file. And in addition, I was heavily involved um, on the arbitration side because of you know, my past experience in publications. And the cool thing is, is we actually achieved exactly what the client wanted. And the best part was spending most of February 2020 in The Hague in the Netherlands, arguing the case at the Peace Palace, uh, which is the home of the International Court of Justice. So that was a total career highlight for me. And I actually, I actually had the client's press release of its sale of the factory and simultaneous settlement of the arbitration claims. I had it made into a plaque so I could hang it on my office wall. Uh, I would say that case is definitely a plaque-worthy case. Um, <laughs> I think you also got to experience being a lawyer internationally through this deal, which also sounds like another you know, added benefit. Um, but how do you say the lifestyles compared? Do you see the life of a litigator being as unpredictable and as stressful as the life of an M&A lawyer? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, well, in my experience, this is an advantage of the life of a litigator. It's less of a roller coaster than the life of an M&A lawyer. Yes, litigators um, will always have moments of high stress and very tight deadlines and um, you know unforeseen surprises. For example, a client may call up and say, we need a cease and desist letter ASAP and you're drafting it overnight, or the client may have received a material threat of a claim against them, you know, like out of the blue, or there may have been a major disaster at a construction site and everyone, you know, project owner, developer, construction company is immediately threatening to sue everyone else. And then, you know, as a litigator, you're thrown into the middle of this and, you know, you know, very intense, very high pressure very high stakes. Um, you know, these will certainly be moments of high stress. Uh, but in my experience, they will also likely be the exception more than the norm. And what happens in between those, you know, sort of fires, on the other hand, is the big and complex litigation proceedings like, you know, our, our claims against Egypt. So, and, you know, What's different here is that these take years and are staged and are mapped out. You know that the defendant will be filing its statement defense, you know, on, on date X and that you're going to have two months to reply. And you know that trial is going to take place on these dates. So you'll be preparing for trial on these dates. And in between you plan who's going to be doing what research and who's going to be drafting which pleadings. And then you're going to be meeting with, you know, witnesses and drafting witness statements. And then... You're going to be meeting with the experts and reviewing the expert reports. And then, and then you know, dealing with evidence this day and age is, is a massive undertaking, you know, given digitization. And all of this stuff, you know, you, ha you have sort of months and months to do and you kind of plan it out um, in accordance with the best way of approaching it, you know, with the actual arbitration schedule or litigation schedule that's been set by the court or the, or, or the arbitration panel. So when you walk into a litigator's office, often you see these giant calendars like on the wall 
um, you know, with marker scribblings on them. And, and the next six or 12 months or 18 months are kind of mapped out, you know, all the big pieces of what they're going to be working on and, and so on and so forth. And, and all I can say is that like M&A lawyers can only dream of such certainty looking forward. Like every deal is its own. Every deal has its own momentum and every deal it, it is its own sort of roller coaster ride. There's, there's, there's the things you know you're going to be doing. And then there's just the massive amounts of, uh, of just unpredictability and sort of riding the train as it develops um, in between. Awesome. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for making that distinction. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to make the decision uh, to transition from litigation work to solicitor work and why you chose m and in particular? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm glad you asked because it, 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 you know, it gives me a chance to return to some of the positives of M&A practice. And I really think there are a lot of positives uh, about M&A practice, and I kind of don't want to overemphasize the negatives either. Um, so the short answer to your question is that, you know, while I was greatly enjoying litigation, I was attracted. This is what it comes down to. I liked litigation, but after a while, I became very attracted to the idea of doing deals and, you know, putting things together. From one perspective, you know, litigators, you know, get called in when things get messy, you know, when people aren't getting along because something went wrong, something went sideways, you know, or, or put another way, while litigators build arguments, you know, so far as I see it, they don't really build things out in the real world. And really what happened is that I decided I wanted to be more involved you know, with putting things together and bringing people together rather than getting called in, you know, when, you know, the, you know, when stuff goes wrong. And, and, and in M&A, you're kind of the architect of a transaction. And you're also helping build a company, helping it grow by swallowing other companies. And you grow alongside that client, you know, you get to know them better and you and, and you're, get to know their business and you help them expand it you know, whether across the country or even internationally, or you help them sell parts of their company that they no longer want, you know, whether it's because they're underperforming or because they need to raise money. But in each case, you're working with a lot of the same people and strengthening relationships. I, I mean, I guess litigators, of course, do this too, in terms of working with the same, you know, in-house lawyers, you know, but of course, like on different disputes and not really in the same way in terms of helping build the company, you know, not, not at least not in my eyes. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, that's fair. And that sounds really fascinating. It's great to, I think, be part of a project over the years and truly see it grow from, you know, early stages until it finishes. And I'm sure over the years, while you're with that company, many things change, such as possibly what the client wants or even the laws that would apply. So to be part of a file that lasts that long is truly commendable. Your comments about helping the client build its company are interesting. And as you've been talking about M&A practice, I've been wondering how much corporate law and M&A lawyer practices, or are they sort of the same thing? Yeah, I mean, great question. Um, I think the short answer is not exactly. Um, the short answer is that corporate law, you know, they are different, but very much related things. Um, and corporate law can be a sizable part of an M&A lawyer's practice. You can incorporate companies for clients, including as part of a transaction. Um, and then as you get more senior, you can advise regarding director's duties, for example, in connection with public M&A, namely where the target is publicly listed. 
you know, an absolutely awesome mandate is advising a special committee formed by a public company's board of directors in connection with a potential M&A deal. Um, in my practice, which is mostly exclusively private M&A, namely where the target is a private non-listed company, you know, corporate law kind of played in, um, you know, it played in most often to the direct, you know, to the drafting of uh, shareholders agreements and, and the negotiation of shareholders agreements. And, and, it, and I like your question because this is, this was actually one of my favorite parts of M&A work, namely M&A transactions, which involved some sort of co-ownership, you know, whether via a shareholders agreement, a limited partnership agreement or both. Um, so a great recent example is, a, is there's, our client was a, a big energy company developing this big energy project. They own the entire project um, and been, you know, developing it for years in terms of getting all the pieces in place. And they were about to begin major construction, but they didn't want to cover all the costs and assume all the risks themselves. So they decided to bring in a project partner and sell them 30%. So not only did we have to negotiate all the M&A agreements that transferred 30% to the new project partner, but then so too did we have to negotiate all the joint venture agreements that outlined how the parties were going to be co-owners going forward, you know, including like how decisions were going to be made and who did what, so on and so forth. And, you know, so this was really my favorite kind of M&A work. I, I, I typically called it project work because you're helping someone buy into a project. And so it's not like your relationship with the client goes away after the closing happens, but then you kind of become their counsel in connection with that project. And not only the possibility of more M&A work, if they're looking to acquire more or if they're looking to sell a piece or, you know, if the two partners are bringing in a third. And then with that comes all these extraordinarily interesting agreements in my eyes, the joint venture agreements, you know, unanimous shareholders agreements, limited partnership agreements, because they dictate how those parties together are going to own and build and develop and operate these massive projects, you know, which often cost billions of dollars or tens of billions of dollars and operate for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And if you get, if you're lucky enough to get in on one of these transactions and one of these projects, then you can literally be the counsel to your client in connection with that project over the entirety of the life cycle of that project. And what's kind of cool about that is it is it is it decreases the sort of roller coaster work of of being an MA lawyer because like as I was saying earlier, you never know when the next deal is going to kind of come in and it can just be a roller coaster or peaks and valleys. But when you bring in someone into a project like this, it's kind of like a guaranteed stream of work. Um, you know, that continues over time and, and that you work on between the, trans, you know, other transactions. So it kind of helps to sort of reduce the stress and, and, and um, increase the hours uh, of a less roller coaster nature. Awesome. Uh, thank you for clarifying that, Paul. Um, so you're now counsel at Baskin, whereas you were previously a partner at Blake's. And as we know, you've just written a book on M&A case law that's also going to print soon. Um, in preparing for today's podcast, you told us that all those things tie together. But can you talk about how exactly they tie together? Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, 
you know, long story short, I'm an example of an alternate co uh, career path in business law. Um, we talked about the roller coaster, you know, I just mentioned it in the high stress environment that is the life of an M&A lawyer. <clears throat> and as you, you know, as you've probably realized, it's not for everyone. Um, it's why a lot of firms struggle to retain people in their M&A groups um, and why a lot of M&A lawyers leave private practice for in-house roles with clients, you know, in search of better work-life balance. And my story is similar. Um, my wife and I realized, you know, that the life of an M&A partner was not exactly what we wanted long term. Um, you know, we also realized that it only takes so much money for us to be happy. And beyond that, what we'd really like, you know, is me being home for dinner more than once a week, being able to go on weekends more regularly, being able to plan vacations with certainty. Um, and then I just also just, I, you know, maybe I'm not one of the people that deals with stress all that well. But, you know, for me in particular, I didn't want to be one of those people who like has a heart attack in their 40s. Um, and, and publishing law journal articles is something I always did. And it was just always kind of part of my business development strategy. I'd been developing my M&A book for a while and kind of putting together the framework. I tried to convince Blake to let me write it, um, you know, and that the firm could put their name on front and make it a pillar of their business development strategy. And, you know, and, and my proposal was essentially that in return, my role would be more of a, of a bespoke one with a, a lower billable hour expectation and they saw the value in the book but at, at the end of the day uh, you know they weren't excited about the idea of me having a lower billable hour expectation um, and that was just kind of the breaking point and so my wife and I decided to take the leap um, and I resigned to write the book um, and now a year and a half later you know I've written the first edition and I joined Faskel as you know Faskin as counsel um, and, you know, we're going to co-publish it. And, um, you know, I'm going to be writing a lot of other things for the firm, you know, in addition to uh, also doing, you know, billable work. So it's kind of a hybrid half and half role. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a pinch me. I'm kind of dreaming moment, because if I had to rate the result based on what I was trying to achieve when I left Blake's, you know, basically, I'd give it out of nine out of ten. Um and so I guess that's the thing to know when you see someone uh, with the title counsel. Typically, it indicates a sort of bespoke arrangement, often someone who used to be a partner, who wants to downshift, or a very senior associate who isn't interested in partnership, or who is on some sort of like alternate partnership track. Basically, it's a designation and a type of role that's becoming more and more common these days, um, which I think generally is a good thing, the, uh, you know, of course, depending on what the particular person is looking for. Thanks for sharing your journey with us, Paul. And I think it's great to be counsel on its, um, sorry, I'm going to restart that. We'll cut that out. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. I think to be counsel is a great achievement on its own because you get to manage aspects of life on your own terms a bit more. And I think it's an achievement and a privilege to be in any position at any law firm. So congratulations on all you've accomplished. Uh, would you be able to tell us a bit more about the book? You describe it as a practice-oriented review of M&A case law and contractual interpretation disputes. Can you provide any more details at this moment? Yeah, I would love to. Um, when I say practice-oriented, um, I mean that I, I've tried to seize on M&A cases, you know, and the facts and issues within those cases that are the 
most relevant to what M&A lawyers do and the substantive legal problems that M&A deals can run into. You know, as Elon Musk has showed us, M&A disputes can be incredibly interesting and very often are. And, you know, so I've tried to bring those interesting stories forward. Um, I've also organized the book and the chapters to sort of follow how M&A transactions unfold, beginning with cases arising from M&A negotiations before moving to cases arising from, you know, you know, the actual drafted M&A agreements. And, and then once I'm there, I also move chronologically, you know, dealing with cases, you know, first dealing with cases that arise from events during the interim period between signing and closing, you know, before then moving on to cases arising from, you know, closing itself. Um, and then there's also, a, you know, a ton of M&A case law that arises post-closing, but I've kind of held those back um, for, you know, three or four chapters that I'm saving for the second edition. But essentially, what I really like to say is that I didn't have any preconceived ideas about how the book would work out when I began. But really, what I just did is, you know, follow the case law. And, and what I mean there is I asked myself this question. When M&A transactions find their way into Canadian courts, what is it that the parties have been fighting about? And really, the book is trying to answer that question. And then I just tried to organize everything that I found in the most interest, you know, most interesting and practice-oriented fashion I could, aiming not for an academic text, but for something that will actually be relevant and useful to M&A lawyers, you know, whether transactional or litigators, on a day-to-day -day level. And it's interesting how it worked out, right? Because this isn't a contract law textbook or a tort textbook. It's a textbook about case law that arises from a particular type of transaction. And, you know, at a really high level, I say it kind of worked out to be about 50% contract interpretation, about 50%, you know, actual contract law principles, about 10% tort, and then I'd say about 10% other. So, you know, including stuff like equitable principles and equitable remedies. And again, that's that's not me chasing any such division. That That's just how me sort of following the case law worked out. And, and to me, given how important M&A is, it's kind of shocking that no one had done this before. There are, there, there are comparable books in the U.S., but in my opinion, they're just quite dry and really do a poor job of bringing out how interesting the case law can be. And, and I really, at the end of the day, wanted to write something more enjoyable to read, <clears throat> you know, including for me, it's just easier to remember the law if it comes from a good story. I totally agree with that. And as a student, I find that many of us learn and retain information better if there is a story that goes with it. So I can't wait to read about yours. The way the book is organized and written sounds extremely interesting. And it's great to know that there are parts of the book that do relate to torts and other areas as well, making it a great read for everyone. I'll definitely be reading and recommending this book to all students, as I'm sure a lot of us haven't had exposure to M&A practice areas yet, but we may be working with M&A lawyers very soon. And I'm also excited to hear that you're already planning a second edition of the book. That's amazing and truly inspirational. And Paul, you had mentioned that part of your role at Baskin is looking at other things you could write that similarly address gaps in the literature. Uh, specifically, you mentioned that you're considering a companion book on private equity. What do you mean by this companion book and what exactly is private equity? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And and uh, just, you know, 
thanks rhythm for your you know your very kind words um you know i you know i, I look forward to the print edition and and it's just nice you know for for you guys to find you know what i've done um to be a value as well but so to go to go to your question eki you know, I, I think it's easier to explain if I start with private equity. So first, it's important to understand that all the big corporate firms are hyper-focused on private equity right now. And by that, I mean chasing private equity clients and building their private equity groups. And the reason is that, you know, as an industry, private equity continues to grow and with that growth is a greater and greater source of, you know, lucrative legal work. As for what private equity is, um, that's actually getting harder and harder to crisply define as the industry expands into sort of new ventures and asset classes. But in its most classic form, um, you know, private equity is highly sophisticated investors. And by that, I really mean highly sophisticated business people and management teams that buy a company, improve it over three or five or seven years, and then sell it for more than they bought it for. So, you know, a good analogy is flipping houses. You buy the house, renovate it, and then sell it for more than it costs to buy and renovate. So in its most classic form, that's what private equity does, except with companies. <clears throat> and so if you've connected the dots, there's an M&A transaction, you know, at each end of that. Hence why private equity clients are, you know, highly prized by corporate law firms because it's a steady stream of M&A work as they buy companies, improve them, and then, you know, as they sell those companies. And that's why I refer to, you know, the private, uh, so, sorry, you know, the, the potential private equity case law book that I'm working on, you know, as a companion book because, you know, M&A and private equity are essentially companion practice areas. Awesome. Thank you. That's really helpful, Paul. Um, and something to look forward to. Uh, just before we wind down here, do you have any other parting thoughts? Um, not really. Like, this has been great. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Um, uh, my first podcast. Um, one thing that does come to mind is I would ask TRUBLS members, if we're not already connected on LinkedIn, you know, reach out to me and send me a connection request. Um, I'll be posting more about the book uh, and the different practice-oriented articles that I write, um, you know, and, and the private equity book. Uh, so, you know, support there would be great. And I'm also looking at a series of LinkedIn posts called Great Quotes from M&A Case Law. Um, which I think could also just, you know, be really quite fun and insightful, hopefully, too. Awesome, for sure. Uh, once again, on behalf of TRU BLS and the Faculty of Law, we thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time out to speak with us today and educating our listeners on the exciting world of M&A. Um, I urge anyone listening to definitely connect with Paul if you're thinking about a career in M&A or business law in general, and make sure to watch out for the release of his new book. Thanks again, Paul. Thank you guys so much. It's been so much fun. And um, yeah, no, uh, I've loved it. My first podcast, like really cool. Thank you. Okay.